This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Things have just gotten even more exciting at Art UK because we've launched our new curation tool, which enables anyone to create their own online collection using works from museums and institutions around the UK. We're excited for you to give it a try, so do head over to artuk.org to give it a whirl. In Western art history, there are themes one will encounter repeatedly, and classical mythology is near the top of that list. Artists have been captivated by the tales of Greco-Roman gods for centuries, and getting a basic understanding of mythology can help unlock the context of many famous paintings and sculptures. I spoke to writer and classicist James Cahill to find out where these stories originate and how they've continued to inspire artists. I guess the thing about myth is that in most cases, these are stories without known origins. So many of the famous myths that we find in art, paintings and sculptures, walking through galleries, are stories that go back to Greece and Rome. Greco-Roman antiquity is already a vast period of time. If you think about the stretch of time all the way from archaic Greece through to late antiquity and the birth of Christianity, we're already talking about a vast amount of time there. And, you know, lots of the stories that you see in art, lots of those mythic stories come from that, the classical world, as we call it. And they occur, I guess, in particular in, in ancient Greek poetry. So if you think about, for example, the epic poems of Homer, which were, of course, originally an oral tradition rather than written text, or again, the poetry of Hesiod, who was an 8th, 8th century BC poet, who, among other things, wrote a poem called The Theogony, which is all about the origins of the world and the birth of the gods, um, and many other Greek writers besides. And the stories in the works of these Greek writers found their way through endless retellings into the works of later writers, so specifically Roman authors, and in particular, someone who I think we're going to mention a lot, the Roman poet Ovid. We have Ovid to thank for many of the stories represented in paintings with mythological themes. He was writing in the first centuries BC and AD during the reign of the first emperor of the Roman Empire, Augustus. One of his most significant and well-known works is the epic poem Metamorphoses, which encompasses over 250 myths across a compendium of 15 books. It was very self-consciously humorous. It was full of illusion and irony. Above all, though, it was full of mythic stories, mythological tales, many of which would have been very familiar to Ovid's readers. You know, he was recycling rather than making up, as it were. But it's in the metamorphoses of Ovid that we tend to find the most famous tellings of the stories that we now have that have become best known to us in Western art. Many myths began as oral stories, and it's difficult to definitively state their origins. Some have their basis in rituals and religion, explaining the role of the gods in the universe, while other narratives grew out of these myths, blending new stories with the myths of the gods. Ultimately, the origins of these stories are very hard to determine, and there are lots of theories surrounding where they came from and what they developed out of. I mean, there's one idea, for example, which is interesting, which is called euhemerism. And according to this theory, myths typically began with real-life events. 
So if you take, for example, the famous story of the Minotaur, who was the half-man, half-bull, the creature that was imprisoned by King Minos in Crete in the, in the labyrinth, uh, the giant maze he created to imprison this creature that his wife had given birth to after she succumbed to lust for a beautiful white bull. The idea, according to a euhemerist position, is that that story has its origin in a real instance of a monstrous bull that terrorised people. And then the story sort of developed layers and became fictionalized and turned into the myth as we have it. Let's look at another example of euhemerism taken from Homer's epic poem, Odyssey. There's a famous story involving a sea monster called Scylla, this horrific monster out in the sea that eats people up. The theory there was that Scylla began originally as a beautiful prostitute who lived on an island and sort of <laughs> lured men away. And then the story develops into this idea of a monster. I mean, that had currency at a certain time, that euhemerist idea. But I think ultimately, you know, myths themselves resist that kind of literalism or historical pinning down, if you know what I mean. In a modern take on the story of Scylla, Eiffel Calhoun painted what appears to be two large cliffs jutting out of a body of water with a ship approaching the narrow gap between them. Beneath the surface of the water is a patch of coral. I always viewed this painting as being phallic, but upon reading about it and learning the story of Scylla, it's actually the opposite. Colhoun was inspired by her view of the lower half of her body as she sat in the bath. The two cliffs are her legs in this case, with the coral functioning as pubic hair. Here, the female monster who seduces sailors and leads them to their death takes on a natural, yet still metaphorical form. So how did these stories first become popular so long ago? Interestingly, actually, in medieval times, the poem became hugely popular through all these vernacular or translated illustrated editions. It became like a sort of picture book. So people were very familiar with the stories in it, but often those editions would wildly distort the the contents of the stories. And in many cases, they added a kind of Christian moral or what's called a Christianized gloss to a given story. So they, they, they played pretty fast and loose with the material. There wasn't a sense of faithfully sort of transcribing or translating what Ovid had written. It is at this time that we see moralistic or cautionary elements introduced to mythology, using the stories to convey Christian values. The stories carried on through the centuries and took on new life through Renaissance artists who found the tales to be fertile ground for creativity. Broadly speaking, the artists began to look at something like Ovid with fresh eyes. And not just Ovid, I mean, the whole of classical antiquity in the 15th century was being reappraised and reassessed. It was a broad cultural mo mo moment that's now termed humanism that was very much centred on the idea of learning from the philosophy and literature of the ancients and, and also reanimating that ancient legacy. You know, and by the 14th century in Italy, certainly, you're in a world where most educated people are reading classical texts, reading them more closely, translating them more faithfully than had been the case in the past. And certainly by the end of the 15th century, those texts have become much more widely disseminated through printed editions. And it was at this time that illustrated editions of Ovid's Metamorphoses were being circulated and were being called the Painter's Bible. You know, it was, it was a known source book for, for painters and indeed sculptors. This appreciation for classical thought is embodied beautifully in Raphael's famous fresco painting, The School of Athens, located in the Vatican. The painting shows a large hall filled with noted Greek philosophers, each with little symbolic indications of who they are. 
Aristotle, pictured in the center next to Plato, carries his well-known text on ethics, for example. Socrates is seen to our left explaining something to Alexander the Great, who's dressed for battle. The painting and its placement in the Vatican indicates that there was not simply a superficial interest in these myths during the Renaissance, but a deep veneration for the philosophies of classical Greece and Rome. Though there were many tales within Ovid's Metamorphoses, we see particular scenes retold again and again through painting. This may reflect the need for artists to consider the moral and religious restrictions of the time, as some of the stories would have been deemed inappropriate to depict. Sometimes there were stories in Ovid that were too grotesque or, as it were, surreal to be easily or safely depicted. To read the poem, you will come across violence and preternatural things that couldn't easily be turned into works of art. And in fact, you know, to some extent, the morals and mores of Renaissance society prohibited that. Of course, there were certain things that just lent themselves much more obviously to visual representation anyway. And very often you'll find that moments from particular myths are illustrated again and again, you know, so the moment where Narcissus gazes at himself in the pool is obviously more arresting and more famous and more popular than other moments in that particular narrative as it's told in Ovid or elsewhere. Narcissus is a good example, the, you know, the story of the beautiful boy who fell in love with his own reflection, couldn't draw himself away from what he was looking at. There are countless versions of that, of that story and that image from antiquity onwards, in fact. I mean, if you go to Roman wall painting from Pompeii, there are, there are beautiful frescoes of Narcissus sitting and gazing wistfully at himself in the water. And they're, they're strikingly similar to much later representations of that same story by, for example, the Baroque painter Caravaggio, who made one of the most famous paintings of that story. And then it, it, it evolves and comes through in much later versions. One very famous example being Salvador Dali's 1937 painting, The Metamorphosis of Narcissus, in which it's a much less representational version, but there are still definite correlations between Dali's picture and earlier depictions of the myth. In an early 20th century example by John William Waterhouse, we see the scene in which Narcissus falls in love with his reflection in the water, but Waterhouse also foreshadows the result of his vanity. Narcissus had rejected the advances of many women in the lead up to this moment, including the nymph Echo, who is shown to the left. She became so heartbroken that the goddess Nemesis cursed Narcissus to fall in love with his own reflection, and he carried on looking for so long that he wasted away and died. A Narcissus flower grew in the spot where he died, and we see two bunches of the flower depicted in the painting. Stories like this conveyed moralistic lessons, but depicting some myths gave artists the opportunity to dabble in more sensual subject matters as well. So if you take something like The Judgments of Paris, which is the story of the three Greek goddesses, Aphrodite, Hera, and Athene, and then the Trojan shepherd Paris, who was required to judge a beauty contest between them, and then his judgment, he picked Aphrodite, the goddess of love, as the fairest, and that led to a squabble that in the end sparked the Trojan War. It's one of the greatest stories of Western literature, and it's told in Homer's Iliad. Anyway, that particular moment of the divine beauty contest afforded artists with an opportunity to show nude goddesses and nude women. And I think for that reason, in particular, it, it, it's, it's recurred many, many times in Western art. The classical nude also came to be an influence for sculptures, as observable in Michelangelo's David. This is due, in part, to the rediscovery of ancient sculptures during this period. There's one fascinating story where the ancient Roman statue, the Laocoon, was dug up in Rome in 1506. And this is one of the most important 
ancient Roman statues. It shows the Trojan priest Laocoon being strangled along with his sons by a sea monster. It's a story that's told in Virgil's Aeneid. As I say, it was it was discovered in the grounds in 1506. And there's a story that Michelangelo was present at the very moment it was excavated. He was there at the site and saw it being dug out of the ground. I mean, that's possibly an apocryphal story, but the reason the story exists is Michelangelo responded directly to the discovery of that statue and a lot of his figures in the Sistine Chapel and in his statues as well. We can observe the influence of this sculpture in paintings as well. Let's look at Titian's painting Bacchus and Ariadne in the National Gallery London collection. Dionysus or Bacchus discovers Ariadne who's been deserted on the island of Naxos and falls in love with her and behind him Bacchus has this kind of train of followers and acolytes this sort of Dionysian train of um, people having a good time and drinking and so on and one of the members of that kind of train this old man is is sort of wrestling with a snake in a way that it directly picks up on the iconography of Laocoon, it's been trying, and this was only shortly after the discovery of, you know, in a matter of decades after the discovery of that statue, and it was already being translated into a painting, and not not just sort of boldly illustrated, but reanimated and developed in that way. And this is something that art historians have dwelt on at great length and with great fascination: the way in which classical iconography, certain poses, and with them certain emotions or casts of mind or feelings, have been carried between media and between epochs. Titian is a great artist to look at for mythological themes, and there was meant to be a Titian exhibition at the National Gallery London at this time, which has been closed due to COVID-19. The show was themed around love, desire, and death, displaying a collection of paintings inspired by Ovid's Metamorphosis. James explains a particularly interesting painting from the show. This is the first time in, I think, centuries that curators have been able to reunite a particular cycle of mythological paintings that Titian created in the 1550s for the then king of Spain. And this was a cycle of mythological canvases called the posy, which is a word that suggests visual poems, or if you like, a confluence of art and literature. And each of them depicted a subject from the metamorphoses. What Titian did was he took, I think, seven different episodes from the poems and turned them into paintings or visual poems. And one of these pictures in particular, Danai in the Golden Rain, whereby the princess Danai was locked away by her father because of a prophecy that she would give birth to a son who would end up killing her father. And then while she was locked away in this tower, the god Jupiter, the king of the Olympian gods, saw her and spied her and fell in love with her and then went and visited her in the form of a shower of gold. It was the only way he could he could get through the window of her tower. So he stole through the window as a golden shower and then made love to her and impregnated her. And subsequently she gave birth to the boy Perseus and the story goes on and on. But the important moment is the moment of sort of conception or divine rape, if you like, when Jupiter comes through the window as this shower of gold. And in, in Titian's painting, the ancient story is very much channeled into the present. And you've got this image of a recumbent Danai lying back in her boudoir with the shower of gold overhead. And she's got an attendant next to her, sort of as amazed as she is by what's happening. Bringing this story into the present day, James has noticed an interesting connection between this tale of the golden rain and a series of photographs by Tracy Emin. The two aren't explicitly related, but there is still an interesting conversation that can be had by considering the two together. I think they're called I've Got It All, but it was basically a sequence of Polaroids in which you see Tracy Emin 
sprawled on the floor and laughing while she's raking up a, a whole heap of coins and banknotes into her crutch. And it's, if you like, it's a sort of unintended reincarnation of the myth where the god in the form of a shower of gold is making love to the woman. And here you've got Tracy Emin <laughs> in a much more sort of blunt and direct and overt way making love to money. And I mean, I'm not the first person to point out the coincidence here or the you know the way in which Emin seems to be, you know, unconsciously perhaps reenacting an ancient myth. I mean, what's interesting to me is whether or not it's a conscious point of reference offers a way of thinking about what she's doing in those photos, which is, yeah, lying down, making love to money in this fairly self-abasing pose and also setting herself in alignment with so many other images of women in art, whether they're Danai or another mythological heroine or, you know, from another story. But, you know, it's 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 something that John Berger, of course, famously writes about in his book Ways of Seeing, whereby women are turned into objects and something for, you know, the male gaze to survey. And I, I feel that, you know, Emin is knowingly responding to that tradition and that way of seeing. I want to offer a brief note on Zeus. Though he's held up as the god of lightning and thunder and the ruler of the gods, Zeus was deeply problematic and caused endless amounts of grief. He was constantly turning himself into some animal or other form and forcefully conceiving children, much to the women and his wife Hera's dismay. In Tintoretto's painting The Origin of the Milky Way, we see that he even placed his infant son Hercules, who was conceived with another woman, by the way, on Hera's breast without her consent while she was sleeping. When she pushed young Hercules off, her breast milk sprayed into the sky, creating the Milky Way. Knowing the context behind these beautifully executed works certainly helps viewers in understanding the symbolism and context of a piece. And we all already tap into this knowledge in different ways. I mean, as I've hinted at in relation to Tracy Emin, I don't think it matters always whether you know what you know. Sometimes these things have come through to us subliminally, unconsciously, we might not have the points of reference, but we might nonetheless somewhere in our subconscious have an awareness through our familiarity with certain visual tropes, with certain ways of depiction. I think that's often the way that myths act on us, even when we don't realise it, you know, through whether it's Hollywood or TV programmes or sitcoms, whatever it might be, there are certain forms of presentation or representation that often have their basis in Renaissance art and before that in mythological poetry that, you know, you might not necessarily consciously rationalize but at the same time it's there and I think a lot of these hidden structures are there when you look at works of art. As one example from film, the movie Clueless is based in part on Jane Austen's Emma. One can still enjoy the movie without knowing about this connection, which is the case when I first saw it in the 90s, but after learning of the connection it made me watch the film with fresh eyes and look for new layers of meaning. These fun connections between stories can help enhance your experience as watchers of films, readers of tales, and viewers of art, so long as you have the desire to dig deeper. I mean, Ovid's Metamorphoses, this is why it's often described as the first work of postmodernism, if you like. It's full of internal references. It's, you know, highly ironic, highly intelligent, very referential. And, you know, every time he tells a story, he's referring to many other stories besides. And there are lots of sort of buried allusions. And it's sort of designed for an intelligent, knowing reader. With that in mind, you often are going to miss half of what was in there. And it's a process of continual excavation. And, you know, and often these things can never be wholly confirmed. Illusion is not a hard and fast thing. It's the hint of something rather than an explicit reference. And I, I think looking at art is a similar thing or looking at films or reading in general. 
absorbing culture of one kind or another. I think we do better to move away from a process of trying to identify clear-cut references to things, but instead just being able to perceive many of the different models and templates and structures that underlie any work of ours. Many thanks to James Cahill for giving us a thoughtful introduction to mythology and art. If you want to see artworks from this discussion, head over to artuk.org, where you'll find the article version of this episode complete with images. Also, please be sure to leave a star rating and review for Art Matters wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people discover the show, and that means more episodes for you. As always, thank you for listening, and please join us again next time.